There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello. Thank you for joining us for this special episode. Today, we're bringing you not one episode of Climactic, but three short episodes of other shows. Two of them are shows new to the Climactic Collective, our network, and the third is produced by a member of our group. You'll also hear short stories from hosts of other network shows and from frequent guests in between the main sections. If you're listening in a podcast app that supports chapter markers, we've made it easy for you to navigate around this episode. To explain this new format and to give a little bit of an update from the publisher, here's me from outside, behind a mask. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a network of podcasts engaged with the big topics we face in the world, and how we can engage with them as people. My name's Mark, and it's Saturday, August 1st, 2020. I'm outside at a local sports field on a beautiful day. And if I was really uh, living in the moment here, I would have no worries in the world. But I've uh, never been good at that. It's hard when you're curious, especially now, not to have something to to worry at, to, to gnaw on in your mind. And I have a feeling that you listening, you know that feeling as well. Nowadays, there's some great shows being made in Australia that help inform my curiosity, while not ignoring the important stuff. Shows that are friends of the Climactic Collective, and that you'll hear more from in coming episodes. Some that may even join this growing network. Back in 2018, when Climactic was just getting started, I hadn't found those shows yet. It seemed like there was a desert where all the podcasts engaged with the climate crisis should have been, but weren't. So with so much empty space, we tried to fill it all. Today's show of Climactic is something different. It's an audio magazine. And that's a format you may have heard before, uh, popularized by This American Life, or an excellent Australian series like Bird's Eye View on the experience of life in a women's prison in Darwin. It's not a new idea, the audio magazine. And we actually tried this all the way back in 2018. And a very big welcome to this, the first of our monthly special audio magazine shows. In this special, we'll ask and hopefully answer a question. I was just figuring out how the gain on my mic worked. One that is on the minds of city councils and concerned citizens across the country. Is China's recycling ban a disaster? Or an opportunity. And we learned a lot of interesting things in that topic, but it was definitely ambitious. And too much for just two people to bite off at that time. But today's take on the audio magazine format is actually something different. Rich, the original co-founder of Climactic, and I, we released just one of those magazine-style specials. And what's worse, it was just the one in a two-part series, which we never really got around to finishing. I uh, hope you do give us some points there for ambition. I learned that the cadence of a weekly podcast is tough enough, but a monthly audio magazine was even tougher. And so why are we going back to have another go at this? Well, because things are different now. Climactic is just one show in over a dozen on the network, a coalition of creators who are all following their own passions, but doing it together uh, for the sake of support and, and solidarity. And so this time around, the lift for any one person is much lighter. 
I hope this first episode in this style, with its truly broad range of voices, is the first of many. I've never been more excited about Climactic, excited to use this feed, this one you're hearing right now, as an anthology for the best and most exciting work happening in the collective. Kind of like a signpost of where stuff is and what it's like. A sampler. So, how's this episode going to work? We have three episodes for you. Two short pieces between 5 and 10 minutes each, and one longer at 20 minutes. That longer piece is a slightly abridged episode of Sustainable You, an established show that recently joined the collective, and that'll sit between the two shorter pieces. The last piece is an exploration of sound in the audio we love, and how bad audio, like a call-in on a radio show or like a street interview with sounds of traffic, can elevate a piece. It'll help you overcome any hesitancy about not trying to tell a story you've got in you just because you can't get perfect sound quality. If you've got such a story, please reach out to us and we'd love to help you tell it. And that's just what our first contributor to today's episode did. Sean Marsh had stories to tell, and was doing so, in writing on his blog. But when just a couple weeks ago, the idea of reading and adapting, sharing his thoughts on a podcast on the Climactic Collective came up, he uh, he jumped right in. There's growing concern among business owners tonight. Thankfully, there's growing concern. Now concern is growing. Our generations are standing on a precipice, staring into a void whose depth science does not know yet. You're about to hear one of the first episodes of Growing Concern, the newest show on the network, before it's available anywhere else. Is the Climate Active Certification a load of BS? Has the government created a greenwashed certification to help out their business pals? And is the Climate Active Certification proof that your brand has achieved net zero emissions? A friend of mine recently sent me a media release, Telstra, how we went carbon neutral. Immediately sceptical as is healthy for anyone in the eco space, I took a deep dive. A couple of hours later, I emerged with doubt and disappointment. What I found was essentially paid-for, greenwashed marketing opportunities for businesses to roll out and quell any ethically inclined customer frustrations. And on the surface, it works. It's difficult to see past the veneer of a cleverly rebranded government initiative and the engaging narratives that paint polluting companies in a born-again positive light. Quote from Climate Active. As a consumer, you make thousands of decisions each year. Imagine if those decisions could help tackle climate change. Your choices would benefit the environment and give you the power to make a difference. Climate Active certifies businesses and organisations that have proven that they are measuring, reducing and offsetting their emissions with a net result of zero emissions. By supporting these organisations, you are casting your vote for a better environment. Climate Active. Look, if I'm honest, it's all really well done. The brand, the marketing, the messaging, it feels good. I want it to be true. But then you start scrolling through their list of certified organisations. NAB, AGL, BP, ANZ, Energy Australia, CBUS, Super, HESTA, Westpac, the list goes on. To me, it reads like a who's who of big political donors. These organisations are well known for not giving a shit about the environment and a fair few actively stand in the way of progress. NAB has loaned... $7,274,000,000 to fossil fuel companies since 2016. Energy Australia, by their own admission, is one of Australia's largest producers of greenhouse gases, particularly carbon dioxide. 
For Westpac, it took months of protests for them to opt out of funding the Adani coal mine. ANZ have loaned $10,843,000,000 to fossil fuel companies since 2016. Hester and CBUS both invest in fossil fuels. And then there's BP, one of four global businesses that are directly responsible for more than 10% of the world's carbon emissions since 1965. How in the hell is Climate Active managing to offset that much pollution? If they had, surely the projects that received said offset payments are powering entire nations with renewables by now. BP's write-up on the Climate Active site states, BP has invested in a deforestation reduction project located in Zambia, Africa. But over in Brazil, their despicable actions tell a very different story. I'll link to that in the description. For the record, carbon offsets do work, but only as a punitive measure. If businesses can buy as many carbon credits they like without having to change a thing, they will never change. If not done right, the purchase of offsets can act as a marketing campaign that ends up providing cover for companies' climate-harming practices. So does any of this smell off to you? I simply can't believe in the efficacy of a climate active certification when they endorse companies like this. Some may say, oh, but, you know, at least they're doing something. Stop being so critical, man. Companies and governments have known about the climate crisis for decades. I'll stop criticising and holding them to account when our future's not at stake. You should too. What I want to know is, what is the organisational structure of climate active? Who's on their board? What is their process for allocating credits? And which independent contractors are used to validate carbon neutrality submissions? None of this information is all that readily available in much detail on their website. What gets me so incredibly frustrated with Climate Active is how precarious trust in ethical companies is right now. Without adding into the mix another entity that's handing out certifications as get-out-of-ethical-jail-free cards. Customers are demanding to know where their money is being spent and whether they're being lied to. Companies see this as a crucial factor in their marketing campaigns, but even the tiniest crack in the facade becomes a PR nightmare. So to prevent that, most pump out grandiose statements followed by incredibly opaque supporting stats. So given all this, I can only view Climate Active as just another opaque government-backed program to help their corporate mates do the bare minimum to tackle the climate crisis. It's like the epiphany one has when you realise the RSPCA, also known as the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty, profits from certifying abattoirs. As always, I'm more than happy to be proven wrong. And on this particular topic, I would relish it, in fact. But given the evidence or lack thereof, I'm not that confident I will be. Thanks for stopping by. And you can visit Sean again when Growing Concern is available on all good podcast apps or at seanmarshdesign.com.au. We're so happy to have Sean amongst us, bringing his creativity and experience with some of Australia's leading ethical and sustainable businesses. But what about when your job isn't all that sustainable? Or you can't have open conversations with friends or even family about your concern about the climate crisis. Our next episode will help with that, or at least let you know about an amazing group that can. To tell us more, here's Lisa Whiston with the latest episode of Sustainable You, ever so slightly abridged. Welcome to the Sustainable You podcast with your hosts, Jackie Kidman and Lisa Whiston self-proclaimed urban hippies, waste warriors, and passionate women. Tune in for practical information and inspiration on how to reduce your impact on the environment and become a more sustainable you.
Before we begin, Lisa and Jackie would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and the places on which we record our podcast. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Sustainable You podcast. I am one of your hosts, Lisa Whiston, and today we're having a chat with Mike McAvoy. Mike describes himself as an actor, theatre maker and facilitator, but I know him as the National Program Manager at Climate for Change, where I work. He is my colleague and he is my boss, I suppose, and he teaches me many things every time I see him. So welcome, Mike. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad to be finally doing this. So to give you a little breakdown, Sustainable You podcast is essentially about Jackie, my co-host, and my journeys towards trying to live a little bit more sustainably and trying to do better for the planet. So we just have decided to start sharing the things that we do and the lessons that we've learned along the way. Sometimes we do interviews with people that we know or meet that are doing awesome things and sometimes we share products or books or movies and stuff that we love in the hope that it just helps people take that first step or do the next thing in living a little bit more sustainably. We try to share the bits that aren't perfect Uh, as hard as that sometimes is for me. But we do recognize and acknowledge that sometimes it's the journey that's just as essential as the results of where we're at today. And so I thought maybe it would be nice to start um, by asking you about your journey and what has led you to be uh, at the point that you are now. Look, in some ways, my sustainability journey started when I was a kid going for bushwalks with my family in in nature in Tasmania and in the wilderness of yeah of Tassie and other places I think there was some sort of appreciation of the natural environment and the need to sustain it that I I got from my parents so I guess you could say that that's where my journey started um like I remember going on a trip to Tassie when I was about nine and coming back and visiting the um, Wilderness Society's gift shop on the way back out of Tassie. And there was a poster that I bought of a pygmy possum, which was really cute, but it had the words on it, please protect my forest home. And that started a conversation between me and my parents asking why was this pygmy possum, you know, threatened. I found out about extinction and I found out about logging and I asked lots of questions about why we log forests (laughs) like what's the point of doing that and understood that you know all of the paper we were using at school and in other parts of the world and lots of the materials we used came from that and you know I guess all of that that discussion with my parents helped me think more about the footprint that we leave for just by living our lives and so I started looking for ways even at that age of how do I reduce my footprint that wasn't a carbon footprint then it was you know other other consumerist kind of things and I remember getting back to school and convincing my teachers to start recycling all the paper in our classroom and um, I talked to the principal about getting recycled paper as our paper source and that sort of thing so there was some part of me right back then that was a bit of a sustainability freak and I jumped right into it and I was probably strongly encouraged by the values that my parents held as well so yeah that's probably where my journey started although you know as a teenager and a young adult I drifted far away from it and it was not the first thing on my mind and yeah as an actor and a theatre maker my my main focus became performing and trying to make money out of being an actor and so my own personal sustainability probably slipped but also my engagement with the social political system and that kind of thing I became more of a spectator and just got frustrated with the lack of action from government. By then I knew well about climate change and how dire our situation was and I could see that our governments weren't doing enough but um, I figured we would probably figure it out sort of globally and I just was just one of those ranters. If only we could just elect that party or this party then it would change and I didn't get involved properly again. Probably, look, I went to a march just before the carbon tax was introduced and at that time it was called a price on carbon 
So I remember going to a protest and that was probably the first kind of engagement that I had beyond just putting rants on Facebook. And then gradually over that next decade, as I saw the policies get smashed and and our conservative government just kind of stripping back the environment protection laws and, and doing absolutely nothing to reduce our emissions, I got more and more desperate. It, was, it wasn't until 2016 that I, that I had a bit of a, an awakening, I guess, and I decided that I needed to do more and I started kind of desperately looking for what more I could do. Um, and that's where I discovered Climate for Change. I saw Katarina speaking in a library and the model made a lot of sense to me. I'm not sure if you, your listeners probably know a bit about Climate for Change, but it's a small not-for-profit and it basically hosts conversations as a social change model. I knew a bit about the way culture change happens, the model that Climate for Change was using to bring about the social climate for effective action on climate change made a lot of sense. I would have jumped right into climate change at that point, but I had also put my hand up for local council and um, I got elected. So I couldn't do climate change, but I was really pleased to be doing something for climate change at a local level and doing what I could to change the systems and, and influence our community at a local level to reduce emissions. But what happened while I was on council is I just realised our politicians even if they're in there with a position of power, there's actually a whole lot of other influencing forces, including the bureaucracy that exists, including the stoush with other parties and all of that stuff that goes on. If they want to implement the policies that we need to reduce our emissions, they're actually going to need the population to be fully behind them and fully engaged and understanding of why we need this drastic change, a bit like we've seen with COVID-19 recently. The population understands the, the threat. They understand it's immediate and that action is needed and so they're willing to accept some pretty big interventions by government. Even if our politicians knew what needed to happen and were committed to doing it, I think they'll run into trouble unless we've got a really strong engagement from our broader population. And so that's what brought me back to Climate for Change. When a job came up at Climate for Change to run the conversation program i was absolutely keen to do it and i put my hand up and i was i'm so grateful that i was able to be offered this opportunity and and it meant that i had to leave council because we're a non-partisan organization so i i left my position on council to put my time and energy into something that for me was a better fit for my skill set but also i think is strategically what needs to happen before we can have the change we need from a government point of view. I know some of that story myself, but there is that kind of part in me that listens to you saying it again and is so curious about when you decided that you needed to do something more, you went, it seems from that story that you went straight to saying, right, I'm going to put my hand up and I'm going to run for council. So in terms of like an understanding over the different types of actions that it takes to fight climate change what made you kind of go straight to government was there a realization around that though or was that just something that you felt like you wanted to do it's that experience where having a dinner party with people or just going about our day-to-day life I sometimes feel like is anyone else aware <laughs> like, there's an elephant in the room that we're not talking about and I kind of feel like shaking people sometimes because it's like I've got this internal panic. We're right near the deadline, guys. What, <laughs> what are we doing about it? We need industry and government and communities to be working together on this and at the moment it seems like it's coming to consciousness but we're not at the level of consciousness we need to be and for, for me, I've, I don't know, I guess I've, I jumped to the political because I feel like that's where big change can happen. But I, I guess my experience on council, I realised that actually the big change happens socially first and then it pushes those government mechanisms in, into action. Yeah, I agree. So maybe you can explain a little bit about the conversation program, which I might add is now being picked up all over Australia and thanks to you in other countries as well. But (laughs) maybe you could speak to our audience particularly and the distinction that we've been able to reach like a particular group of Australians and how we've been able to shift them. So the conversation program 
borrows from the Tupperware Party model in that it's um, not selling plastic, but it is using network marketing to reach new audiences and to go through people's social networks to have a conversation about climate change. So someone will host a conversation, usually face-to-face in their lounge room, although in this period of time we're doing a lot of these online um, through Zoom, and that person will bring their friends and family in together and they'll have a two-hour conversation that's facilitated by one of our trained volunteers. And in that conversation, they'll reflect on what is the problem, they'll really get their head around that, what are the solutions available to us, but most importantly, what can we do as individuals to make the biggest impact? And the hope is that we'll realise that the biggest impact we can have is by reaching out to the people around us to get them engaged in the issue and together standing up and demanding the kind of policy changes that we need from our governments and from businesses. So at each conversation, we then ask, like they do at Tupperware, for somebody to host the next one. And that person from then brings their friends and family together. And so the idea is that it can keep growing and we can keep reaching more and more people this way. But one of the great benefits too is that it it builds on the trust that exists in our social networks that actually helps change attitudes and behaviours more than any kind of news thing or documentary thing. Like we're actually talking about it with our friends and family is one of the things that shifts us more than anything. And so it uses that to create change and to reach new audiences that haven't necessarily engaged on the issue before. We've just done a, a review of our sort of three and a half years worth of running the program. We did follow-up interviews three months after the conversation of all of the people that came to our conversations and we've done a classification of our audience based on their attitudes before and then after the conversation and also their behaviours. How were they engaging with the issue of climate change before and after the conversation? And we found that we're reaching this kind of wavering middle of Australians very effectively. So people who are a bit worried about climate change don't really know much more. If you put a concrete policy in front of them, they might well balk at it because it's going to add to the cost of living or something, which kind of means they don't understand climate change as much as they could. And so we're reaching that group. It's about 33% of our audience come from that group of Australians. Another 37% we would classify as passive, who are pretty committed to action on climate change, would support some pretty strong policies that bring our emissions down, but are really engaged on any civic level on the issue. And then the other big group that we're reaching is other people who are already quite active on this issue, and there's there's about 25% of our audience in that. So that's who we're reaching. And then what we're noticing is that almost 48% of them have shifted categories up the line. So our wavering people, some of them have skipped passive and they've gone straight to active. About half of those people in the passive category have also shifted significantly up to becoming much more active and and leading on bringing about putting pressure on our politicians to make change. And they're doing much more activism in different ways, whether that's writing letters and engaging with politicians directly or attending rallies, or um, divesting their their superannuation and moving their bank accounts, getting out on the street and protesting physically, like all of those things are happening more often from our audience. Even if they haven't shifted categories, they might be doing those things a little bit more often than they were before. So yeah, that's who we're reaching. And it's really exciting to having, having now done that kind of research and evaluation to say, yes, we're doing what we set out to do and it's working. It's very exciting to see the results of that impact report and to know that we're doing what we set out to do and that there are also lots of other results that we found about how the indirect reach of a conversation, we don't even quite know the impact of that, but we know that it's reaching a lot more people than just those people that attended the conversation themselves. We usually ask our guests, what are the biggest challenges that you've faced personally or in this case, was going to be about climate for change. What are our challenges? And, you know, you can answer that question too. But I also wanted to get your understanding or your learnings from being forced to go online with COVID, what was and is still a little mm. challenge to us yeah. as 
also been an opportunity? It's been extraordinary to see the whole globe just change <laughs> overnight and people who you would never think would ever grapple and get Zoom working on their computers have done that and are now, you know, Zoom experts, my parents. Like, it's incredible to see the shifts happening in the world. It looks exciting about what's possible if we turn our mind to it, if we recognise the threat of climate change. We've got the ability to turn things quickly as a globe and as communities and as society. In the conversation program, it very quickly shifted the conversations to an online format, which would have tried at some point, but it wasn't top of our priority list because we thought that it wasn't going to be quite as effective as doing it in person. But what's happened is it means that in some ways, logistically, it's easier and it's potentially faster. Before you and I, Lisa, started working at Climate for Change, there was a decision made, I think, at the beginning of 2018 to start, or maybe 2017, to start in Queensland, having just been working in Victoria. And it was a big decision and it took a lot of thought and there was a lot of, there was actually, you know, emissions spent in flying to Queensland to try and train people face-to-face in Queensland and get things going in a new state of Australia. Now we've moved things online, it's possible now for us to train people in New South Wales and ACT and Tasmania and Northern Territory and South Australia and instantly we're, you know, we're very close to being an Australia-wide organisation and offering our program anywhere that anyone wants to do it and that's a pretty exciting prospect and it happened Really, I think it happened because of COVID. So it's not all bad, hey, having to do homeschool. <laughs> oh, no, homeschool is bad anyway, you want to put it. <laughs> what is your one tip for our listeners? In Usually it's in kind of their journey to be a bit more sustainable, but, you know, what would be your one action or tip that you could offer or give to our listeners to make the most difference in their lives? Remember that we're part of a democracy. And that we have elected representatives at a local level, like local council. There's probably one or two or three councillors who are meant to represent you at the local council. And there's at a state level, there's one that's dedicated to represent you at the state parliament level. And there's one that's dedicated at the federal level. Plus there's senators so that, and upper house representatives at the state level. And they're all meant to be speaking on our behalf in Parliament. So if we're slogging our guts out, trying to be more sustainable and growing our own veggies and composting and riding our bike and catching public transport, and actually it's more effort than it needs to be because of some sort of little blocker, whatever that is, whether that's because our local council does not collect green waste or doesn't allow you to have chickens in the backyard. Like whatever the little blockers are at that local level or at the federal level in that the whole system is built around fossil fuels at the moment and it needs to go to renewables, like we can get our representatives to represent us. The way we do that is directly engaging with them by phoning them or turning up at their office or sending them a letter or sending them a petition if they're not listening and actually... Our democracy is robust enough that if we put that pressure on, it will change the policies. Like that's my tip. I think that we f- we forget that we often lose lose faith in that system, and it's understandable because the system is pretty crooked at times and doesn't seem to be listening to us all that well. But actually, the more persistently we ask them to listen to us, I think they will, and it will shift. Thank you so much, Mike. I hope that everybody has enjoyed and taken something away from this conversation. And as always, we hope to help you become a more sustainable you. you. There's close to 40 episodes of Sustainable You waiting for you. You lucky ducks. They've even got a newsletter of great stuff. Sign up at sustainableupod.com. Lisa and Jackie have been such an inspiration, and the journey they've been on since launching in early 2019 is so replicable, using the first-hand experience they lay out in their show. First-hand experience of engaging with the hard topics 
the heavy stuff, not just the climate crisis, but all the challenging aspects of life in these climactic times, that type of show has a welcome home in our group. And another new member of the collective that really embodies this is Them Power. And to introduce themselves, here's co-hosts Manit and Upeksha. Hi everyone, I'm Manit. And I'm Upeksha, and we run the podcast channel Them Power, where we talk about social justice issues of relevance and aim to empower people through education and knowledge. A few topics we've talked about is fast fashion, rape culture in South Asian countries, and how we can be allies of the Black Lives Matter movement, and so much more. Thanks Climactic for having us on board. We love and share so many values with Climactic and could not be prouder to be hosted on this channel. Come check us out. Thanks. We're all so thrilled to have Manit and Upeksha with us. And you can find their nearly 20 episodes at thempower.org. As with all of these shows, the links are in the show notes. And you can find all the shows in the collective at climactic.com.au. But there's a show so new, you won't find it there yet. And that is Half Measures and Hope. And to whet your appetite, here's host Angelica. Hi, my name is Angelica. I'm the host of Half Measures and Hope a new podcast on the Climactic Collective. I put this together because I wanted to hear long-form discussions about history and politics. And since nobody else was doing it, it's clearly up to me. Whatever the topic and whatever the level of audio experience, the Climactic Collective is all about developing the skills of our members. We're equally lucky to have seasoned vets as we are our eager beginners. But it always lifts my spirits to see the generosity with which we share our skills. One example of this is our final episode for today's audio magazine. And it's by Sydney-based audio creator Eamon Connolly. To teach us about texture in audio. And how a perfect recording isn't always what you want. This episode has a transcript. Go to bit.ly forward slash read underscore t t. This podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land it is produced on, the Darug and Gurungai peoples in particular. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded. People feel sounds. Not just when the subwoofers shake your bones during a loud moment at a cinema with a good sound system, or when certain quiet sounds spark your ASMR. The meaning and intention behind someone's voice can be affected drastically by how something sounds. Someone yelling down a hallway feels different to the same words spoken softly from across a quiet room. And it's not just to do with how well you can hear them. You're listening to These Trying Times. Creative motivation and inspiration from a bit of a different angle. I'm Eamon Connolly. Let's go outside for a change. Can you tell where I am? The background noise might give a little bit of a clue, but honestly, I could be anywhere as far as you know. I want to talk about texture, or as it usually comes up as, bad audio. But that's kind of reductive. Some of the most amazing moments in entertainment have been through a phone line filter when movies replicate real life and what you would hear when a murderer is on the other line. What's your favorite scary movie? Or the person you love is talking softly into the receiver. Pillows and blankets and gather them up on the couch and just cuddle and watch a movie. We'll be good. Texture is great for helping listeners distinguish between sound sources, like a narrator and an interview. And for the most part, it happens accidentally. If you've ever tried to record with a remote guest, you know exactly what I mean. Sometimes all you end up with is a roomy recording. But you know what? When you combine that with five other recordings of different types of imperfections, you get something really cool. People are more used to hearing two different qualities of audio than they might notice. Think about non-podcast mediums. People hear a host and a guest going back and forth. Radio call-ins, live news crossing to field reporters. In a kind of funny way, podcasting might actually be one of the few spaces 
we would hear clean audio for a long period of time without a break. There's a lot to be said for striving for clarity and consistency, but sometimes to get someone to pay attention, you need to add variety to more than just the words being said. It really depends on the thing you're doing, but if you're making something that would constitute a story, cutting between different qualities of audio can be really impactful. We're almost always striving for the cleanest, most pleasant sounding audio, and that's a great default goal. Maybe, though, we should wonder whether some phone quality audio here and there will help keep people engaged and curious. There's no guarantee that the version where both people are perfectly clear is going to be more impactful to the listener. Maybe the thing you're making would be uplifted by some bad audio. Nearly everyone who has listened to a podcast has also heard what a traditional radio show with call-ins sounds like. The thick, clear tones of the show's host stacked against someone dialing in from whatever phone they have access to, thin and gently distorted. It's a familiar disparity. It can add legitimacy. It can add familiarity. But what's most interesting to me is it adds that grain, that finish, that crackling that you can feel when someone ends a word while softly speaking through a telephone. A big caveat with that is, again... You have to be combining lots of different things so that you can hear the difference. Because if you can't hear the difference, it does just sound like garbage. If you have a 40-minute long interview with bad audio, yeah, that does sound like garbage. But if you combine four different interviews and each of them have their own slight differences, which has happened a lot with remote recording for a lot of people, trying to get that happening and do their best with recording interviews online and struggling because it's a hard thing to do. It adds to the feeling, if you know what I mean, without changing the content. When people mix audio for TV shows and movies, even when they're re-recording dialogue to dub over a scene shot outside, they put extra work in to match that environment instead of keeping it as clean as possible. It's such a huge, important thing to make the sound match the visual. And part of that is making the audio sound worse. A lot of cinematic sequences could have much clearer dialogue, but it's a choice. When someone is yelling across a big concrete room, it needs to sound like that. And when someone is on the phone, it needs to sound like they're on the phone. And that's because it matters. You can feel it. There's something that just sits right, or sounds good, or feels nice. And it's not necessarily the fact that it's the cleanest possible audio. Of course, there are plenty of examples where people decided not to make it sound like a phone and just use the nice, clear audio, but that's a creative decision. Sounding like a phone call means something, but not if the rest of the movie also sounds like a phone call. This is why many people consider audio one of the most essential things to get right in video. Most movies are huge tapestries of sonic textures and every piece adds to the story. Marketers adapted to COVID-19 in 2020 with their video ads. They were looking to resonate with people, and one way they did that is by making their ads look like a web call, by having roomy, bad audio. They definitely could have had better audio. I'm talking about, like, big banks, people with money who can afford to work creatively, people who could definitely get clean audio, deciding to make it roomy. Right now, knowing where you stand financially is more important than ever. But with so many different benefits, rebates and concessions, it can be confusing. Beyond just the familiarity factor, the advertising industry has known for years that adding just a little bit of friction to something can make people pay more attention and remember your message. The same techniques can be applied to podcasting. Hearing an interview captured imperfectly, like over a phone line, a webcam microphone, God, that's bad. Maybe a location with a crowd in the background. It can mean something. Maybe a bad recording is the only thing you have of something someone amazing said. That doesn't necessarily mean that recording is bad. In fact, it can mean that recording is going to be more compelling. It can be used to create an impactful contrast, especially if you're sewing it into a blanket of other textures. And so I'd encourage you to think about this. If you're doing anything scripted, if you're making anything that you're writing, think about what you can do to make it more interesting. There's a lot. It can be as simple as recording half of it into the best microphone you have and the other half into your smartphone while you walk around the park. It adds something. Don't discount texture. Don't just call it bad audio. There's a reason movies sound like that. You're listening to These Trying Times. This show is produced by me, Eamon Connolly, with production assistance from Angel Fauchelevent. 
Thanks for sharing that with us, Eamon. You can find the show, These Trying Times, and the other episodes about the creative process on Spotify. I got inspired by Eamon, and when friend of the show and frequent guest, Joe Dodds, sent in a message from Tathra on uh, the south coast of New South Wales, I was challenged to turn a, a really lovely phone message into something to really grab your ears. Oh, we've seen fire and we've seen rain. Hi, this is Joe Dodds, president of Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action. We've seen sunny days that we thought would never end. Seen lonely times when I could not find a friend. It's been a hard year for a lot of people. 2020, uh, it started with a bang. Drought, bushfires, floods and COVID. But good things do come out of crisis times like this and one of those good things is Climactic. Climactic features podcasts that are diverse, interesting, informative and they've got a lot of heart about them. So if you want to hear some good stuff about climate, about action, about grief, about joy, I recommend Climactic. Give it a listen. But I always thought that we'd fix climate change if we all listened to Climactic more often. Thank you for being such a good sport, Joe, and for sharing your gifts with us. We're engaging with serious topics on Climactic. And all the shows on The Collective are. But we can't hope to improve things if we lose sight of joy. And uh, if we disconnect with our creativity, writer, poet, and host Beth Spencer says this better than I can, so I'll let her. Hi, my name is Beth Spencer, and I'm speaking from dark and young land on the central coast of New South Wales. The climate crisis has been of huge concern to Australian writers and poets, and it's been my privilege to interview some of them for Climactic. And I hope more writers and artists will join us and make use of this fantastic space where we can share our ideas and insights and our grief and hope and anger and bear witness to what we as a culture are creating and how we can do better. I think more than ever that we need the power of imagination and words and the processes of creative attention and play to inspire and encourage and connect and to reinvent ourselves for the future. Thank you to all the wonderful people involved in the climate community. Keep listening, keep creative, keep active. In close to an hour, we've done a lot in this program. You've sampled three different shows and heard about even more. You've heard a lot of voices and been introduced to many names. There will not be a test. You can find more information about everything we've covered in the show notes. But if there's just one thing you take away from this, our first audio magazine episode of Climactic as the flagship program of the Climactic Collective, I hope it's just one word. Variety. Something for everyone who wants to engage with these climactic times we find ourselves living in. This important time. Find something for everyone at climactic.com.au and get in touch if you don't. Because the one thing we've all learned is if you can't find it, then maybe you should make it. And we're here to help. On behalf of the Climactic Collective, thank you for joining us. I've been Mark Spencer, and I'm thrilled to be the publisher of this network of great shows. If you enjoyed this, please take a moment to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, and tell a friend. I'd like to thank the musical friends of Climactic. Tom Day, for his music used in this and past episodes. Greg Grassi of Soju for our beautiful theme. 
Matt Wicking, and the General Assembly for our outro, as well as past guest Jacob Richards, who's kindly allowed us to use his beautiful synth pieces as pushka for past and future episodes. We're always looking to collaborate with Australian artists making climate and socially engaged music. If that sounds like you, get in touch with us. We'd love to work with you. Find out more about this show and all the shows on The Collective by signing up for our newsletter, The Climactic Club. It's the best way to stay up to date with news and updates from the network and to find out about all the stuff we've been loving recently. Just follow the link in our show notes to sign up or visit climactic.com.au and you'll be prompted to join. All right, one last thing. Climactic offers a free service to our listeners and it's called the Community Corner. You think of it as a notice board at the local supermarket. These messages can be about events, uh, news, announcements, updates from groups, uh, calls for help on things, or even just your thoughts, questions, and your perspective. It's where we turn the mic back to you, the community. Learn how to send in your message and get it run on the show from the Community Corner tab of climactic.com.au. And that's it for this first issue of The Climactic Curation, our new audio magazine. What did you think? What do you want to hear going forward? How can we improve? We'd love to hear from you. So until next time, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.